All right, today we're going to ask a really challenging question. Should we give away all of our possessions? Sound challenging enough? Yeah. All right, good. So we're going to get after it with the story that's going to kind of confront us with a picture of discipleship that will seem almost incomprehensible to 21st century Americans. So let's pray. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open up our minds, lead us into your truth, that we might better open up our hearts and our hands for the sake of Jesus Christ and for Christ's mission in the world. Amen. This is from Mark 10, 17 to 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But well, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The word of the Lord. Alright, a little gut check here. How does this passage make you feel? Anyone? Not rhetorical. Guilty. <laughs> right? There's a good, yeah, honest answer. How else does it make, how does it make us feel? Yeah. Okay. Discouraged. Yeah. Absolutely. Any other thoughts? Defensive. Mm. Good. Other thoughts? The great words. All ones that I feel too. Um, before we actually get into this, I'm going to say um, we sh- we should know this by now, um, having been listen- listening to me enough. I'm preaching to myself every bit as I am to anybody else. We understand that, right? It's really important in this passage. Um, by the world standards, we all know, we understand that we're pretty wealthy, right? Okay. All right. As long as we're okay with that statement, we're going to be able to get into this. So when I first read it, the thing that came to my mind is I said, I, it felt like I got punched in the gut, like hearing this message, you know? So it's like a combination of <laughs> all those guilt, discouragement, whatever. Um, 
And it reminded me of when my kids were little. Uh, when they were tiny, I used to like tighten the abs that I used to have. And my kids would like haul off and I'd let them punch me in the gut as hard as they wanted to. And then I would like pretend that it didn't hurt and I would say you know, things like, oh, it felt like a fly landing on me. <laughs> Whatever. And then they would laugh and then I'd let them do it again. It was pretty cool because I was like, you know, like Superman. I was like the hero. Um, and then I was thinking about it. I'm like, if I tried that again today, I would be in the hospital. For sure. <laughs> um, this would be a really bad experiment today. But it worked really well when they were younger. Um, and so... I was thinking about this because I'm like, you know, what do we typically do when we know that we're about to get punched in the gut, right? If you knew that was going to happen, what would you do? You try to soften the blow to lessen the pain. We put a pillow in our shirt, we tighten our abs, we block the punch, we turn and run, we find somebody bigger to defend us. Um, we do all kinds of things to try to soften the blow, to have it hurt a little bit less. And it's like, this is exactly what Christians have been doing with this passage for a long, long time. They try to soften the blow of this gut punch that Mark gives us, right? And so one way the Christians have done this, which really blew my mind, I, I didn't, I, this has made me think quite a bit, was there's actually like this false story that's circulated since the ninth century, right? And so I guarantee you there will be many preachers around the world that will use this illustration today as an illustration of this text and all the evidence points to the fact that this story isn't even true, okay? And you have to think about why would a story, why does a story like this exist, all right? And so the story goes like this, right? Jesus said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And ever since this statement, we've been trying to explain away that sentence for centuries. And so one of the stories that was used was that there's a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. Remember, Dale, I talked to you about this. Dale had heard it. A couple people have probably heard it. Um, and the story goes like this, right? There's, a, there's an actual gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And it was called that because it was too small for a camel to pass through. So when the camel would get to Jerusalem, it would have to stop, shed all of its baggage, including the rider. Then the camel, picture this, has to like shimmy through this gate on his knees. Um, it's like... If this were true, this would make a great story for preaching. Like, coming to God like, without your baggage is touching. Like, it's a moving story, right? Um, it's just not true. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's not true, you know? It's like there's, there's no evidence for such a gate, no record of any architect. Like, think about the failed architecture student who designed that gate. Like, like come on. Like, the architecture student wasn't good enough to design a gate that a camel with a rider could go on. It's so, if you think about this, it's so ridiculous. But think about why, why such a story exists. That's not ridiculous. Why does this story exist? Because it softens the blow, right? It makes it hurt a little bit less in order to say that Jesus, he didn't really mean what he said, or, oh, Jesus is talking to somebody else, he's not talking to me, right? That's a good reason for the stories like that. Um, so it's like, if Jesus really did mean what he said, would we have to sell all our possessions and give them to the poor? Maybe, I don't know. But what I'm certain of is this, that Mark actually intends this story to hurt a little bit. You could tell it hurt the disciples when they heard it. You can feel their exasperation when they get to that question. Then who can be saved, right? We'll get there in a moment. So it's supposed to do the same thing for us. So one of the temptations as a preacher is I've got to resist the temptation to soften the blow too because that's not going to be helpful to us. 
So we're going to sit with it a little bit in the discomfort, and then we'll see where we end up. So Jesus is along the way to Jerusalem. He encounters this guy who kneels down before him. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after this brief little lecture on the fact that only God is good, Jesus rattles off the partial list of the Ten Commandments. If anybody caught this, this would be incredible. He rattles off this list of the Ten Commandments, but did you notice when he gets to the Tenth Commandment, he changes it? I don't know if anybody noticed this, but the Tenth Commandment reads, You shall not covet. Jesus said, You shall not defraud. You shall not defraud? Where is that in the Ten Commandments? He changes something. And it's like, when I looked at this, I, don't worry, I didn't catch it either, all right? But I was reading someone who said, you should pay attention to this, this probably means something. And I was like, yeah, could this be a clue as to how this rich young man made his money? It's possible. Perhaps this guy made his money at the expense of others, especially the poor. And the answer, again, is maybe, right? We just don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. Here, but here's what Mark says. He says that this man kept the commandments in their entirety. But just for a second, sit with that statement. Since he was a boy, this guy has kept the entire law. If he's defrauding people, he's doing it legally, within the bounds of the law, through some loophole, perhaps, which, of course, that never happens today, right? <laughs> right? I mean, think how people do this today, and you could see how maybe this guy is making some money and some... Yeah, some shady but legal ways, right? Happens all the time. And so, like, most people's response to this guy is probably they think he's full of it. They think he's arrogant, prideful, that he brings, like, think about this guy who brings a, a moral report card of straight A's to Jesus, right? Just picture this. He's got his little moral report card. He brings it to Jesus. It shows straight A's. It's like, and it's fascinating, but the rabbis of Jesus' day, they actually taught and believed that a person could fully obey the law. This, to me, this is unthinkable. But the rabbi spoke of people who actually kept the Torah from A to Z. Now, you're going to be shocked. Like, nobody accuses me of keeping every single commandment. I'm sure I've broken one this morning, right? Does anyone, accuse, does, does anyone get accused of this? <laughs> keeping every single one of Jesus' commandments? Or am I among good company? Right. It's good once in a while to feel a little bit better about yourself. It's like, here's this guy. He's one of those people, right? One of the people that the average Joes can't stand. He's serious about his faith. He's genuinely interested in discipleship. He says he wants to inherit the kingdom. And he's willing to obey all of the rules to get there. The big problem is, is that he lacked one thing. One. He lacked one thing. The list of things I lack is a mile long. This guy lacks one thing. And Jesus doesn't, look what he doesn't do. He doesn't call the guy arrogant. He doesn't call him a liar. Jesus actually believes this man when he says that he's kept the law perfectly. This man shows Jesus his moral report card. Mark says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. You know that this is the only person in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus says that he loved? This man. This is amazing. It's like this guy, he didn't pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. Jesus wasn't fooled. Scripture says that Jesus examined him, that he scrutinized him, that he searched this man's heart. But Jesus, there was one weakness, like Superman's kryptonite. He said, go sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. 
Normally, we assume that someone who has kept all the rules perfectly is a shoe-in for the kingdom of God. That's the assumption. And yet Jesus teaches something radically different. He says that his full obedience to the rules is no substitute for following Jesus. They're just not the same things. It's like Jesus seems to be saying that relationship to Jesus is more important than following the rules. More important than checking the boxes. And like, this is, this is the most important sentence, maybe, of the whole message. It's like, this man was following all the rules, but he wasn't following Jesus. Just think about that. He's following all the rules, but Jesus is like, yeah, but you're not following me. So here's what I think is happening. Jesus is offering himself as a substitute for the man's possessions. He's looking, he's searching this man's heart. And he's saying, look, you can keep all your stuff. You can turn and even walk away from me. Or you can unburden yourself of all your stuff and you can have me. And the man is shocked, the scripture says. The word in Greek actually means overcast as the sky. So imagine yesterday's overcast sky. This guy is downcast. He goes away grieving because he was a man, the scripture says, who had a lot of stuff. In saying very little, Mark has actually said everything. He says, because we know from Mark so far that to turn and walk away from Jesus is to forsake the kingdom and the abundant life that comes with it. This is what Mark is saying. And so the young man leaves. Jesus looks intently at his own disciples, and he's like, this is another sad moment. He looks at them, and he's like, do you guys want to walk away from me too? You know, you want to follow him? Because you can. And this is another one of those great gospel reversals, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom, he said. Because normally wealth grants access, right? It opens doors. It allows for possibilities. But here Jesus reverses what most of us just believe to be true about how the world actually works. So should we sell all of our possessions and give the proceeds to the poor? Maybe. I don't know. Throughout history, there have been a few dedicated people that have done just that. When I look at their lives and I read about them, I'm like, I really admire these people who are willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. They inspire me, they motivate me towards greater generosity. And so I picked one for today. Third century, St. Anthony of the Desert. Anybody? All right. This is a cool guy. Like, he is weirder than weird, but inspirational. <laughs> His parents died when he was 18. He inherits 300 acres of land and the responsibility of raising a younger sister. All right? He's in worship one day, 18 years old, and he hears read, if you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. He walks out of his worship service, and he gives away all of his land, except the bare minimum that he and his sister needed to survive. Now the next week or so, a couple weeks later, he hears the text in worship, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring troubles of its own. He walks out of the worship service and he gives away the rest of his property. He entrusts his sister to a convent and he moves out into the desert to live a life of prayer, fasting, and manual labor. Does that sound fun? Okay. It just gets better. This This guy's awesome. So... All these people were coming to find him. In order to escape the hordes of people that start seeking him out, he moves deep into the Egyptian desert. Um, They still found a way to find this guy. He spent 20 years talking to people through a closed door. Okay? 
So he would only talk to people through a door. He didn't allow people access to him. He just hang, he's like this hermit who hangs out into, in the desert. Um, and his friends were like, you know what? We want to be with this guy. We want to learn from him. So they kicked the door down in order to be with him. All right, you, you can fact check me if you want. This is fun stuff. All of his desert years, guess what this guy ate? Only two things. Well, three. Bread and water. And then as he got older, he indulged and he got some oil for his bread. He really splurged, right? So this is what this guy eats, and he was like, said to have been super fit from all the manual labor, he lived to 105 years old. It's like the first thing I thought of was like, we need to simplify our diets. <laughs> Bread and water, and this guy lives to 105. What's wrong with this? Um, but this is the best part. Two Greek philosophers venture out into the Egyptian desert to meet with Anthony. When they got there, Anthony asked them why they had come to talk to such a foolish man. And they saw before them this guy who probably did look pretty foolish, right? Wearing a skin, he refused to bathe, he lives on bread and water. These were like fancy Greeks, right? Anthony's an Egyptian. They were philosophers educated in multiple languages and rhetoric. Anthony needed an interpreter just to speak to him. In their eyes, this guy probably looked really, really foolish. The Greek philosophers, they had heard the stories of Anthony. They had heard stories about how people were coming from all over to learn from him. They had heard stories about how his intercession had brought about healing and how his words were comforting, comforting the hurting. Um, and they assured him that they too had come because he was a wise man. This is the best part. As philosophers, they said they wanted to hear Anthony's words and his arguments for the truth of Christianity. And Anthony was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> he said, this, this is it though. He says, if you think me wise, then become what I am. If you think me wise, become what I am, for we ought to imitate the good. Ooh, you see what he did there to philosophers. He told them, oh yeah, old well, philosophy should be imitating the good. Uh, he kind of turns it back on them. And he says, since you've come to see me, become what I am. I am a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Become what I am. Imitate the good. It's like, I was blown, I'm blown away by this guy, but I'm not going to lie. I'm also a little bit terrified of it. Like, he never tried to explain away the challenge of the message of Mark 10. He became the message. He embodied the message of Mark 10. He imitated the good, all because he said that he wanted to become what Jesus said. All because he wanted to follow Jesus more closely. So it's like, should we give away all our stuff? I don't know. I'm not really sure. Very few people have ever answered yes to that question, by the way. So if you're answering no, you're in great company. Very few people have actually answered that question, yes. But what if we, you know, outside of these kinds of things I'm thinking about, they're helping me think about questions like, you know, would this world look any different if all the followers of Jesus Christ took St. Anthony of the Desert's advice to become what Jesus said? If we took that more seriously, what might this world look like if we tried to become the words of Jesus, if we imitated the good? Here's where the disciples are. They're exasperated, Right? absolutely exasperated, this gut punch, they say to one another, if this near-perfect guy, who's obeyed all of the commandments, if this guy can't be saved, then who can? And it's like, this is a great question. And Jesus gives a great response. He says, for mortals it's impossible, but not for God. With God all things are possible. Like, I used to, have, my mom used to quote this scripture to me all the time growing up. It's like, it's her favorite. 
Anytime I'd be like, yeah, that can't be done, you know what I mean? She'd just be like, you know what? With God, all things are possible. Like, I, I these ones memorized. And what is he saying? He's saying that God can save those who sell all their possessions and give their proceeds to the poor. God can also save those who don't. God can do whatever God wants because salvation can't be earned. This is what this rich young man doesn't understand. It can only be inherited as a gift. He doesn't get this yet. And so it's like, as I think about it, it's like in our weaknesses, in our deficiencies, in our inability to get it right, in our futile striving, when we try to check all the boxes, when we try to follow all the rules, and we come up short, that's where the potential of God is. This is where we find grace. And so it's in this exchange between Jesus and the disciples, there's this kernel of grace. The disciples, they had already left everything. They've left their families, their businesses, their hometowns, their money, their possessions, all to follow Jesus. And Jesus reminds them that, that reward awaits them in this life and the next. But you can't save yourself, not by following the rules, not by checking the boxes, not even by giving away all your stuff and giving your proceeds to the poor. But don't worry, Jesus might say, because with God, all things are possible. So I want to finish with the question that started all. What must I do to inherit eternal life? When I was thinking about it, it's like, what can anyone do to inherit anything? What do we do to inherit things? There's absolutely nothing we can do to inherit things. What's inheritance about? It's about belonging. It's not about earning. It's about belonging. It's like anytime inheritance comes up in my family, my dad loves to kid my brother and I that he's spending our inheritance as fast as he can. <laughs> uh, which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> Jesus is like, we're going to inherit the kingdom if we belong to God's family. And we remember that we aren't God's children because we try harder. We're not God's children because we follow the rules. Not God's children when we get an A on our moral report cards. We belong to God's family only by God's grace as a gift. And so Jesus wanted this man's heart. This is what he wants. But the thing is, there wasn't any room left in it for Jesus. This is what we see here. It's this sad commentary on what it means to be human. It's part of maybe the tragedy of what we might call the human condition that so often we prefer our stuff over life itself. And I think that's where this guy is. He actually prefers his stuff over life itself. Certainly he's making a choice to keep his possessions over having this relationship with Jesus. It's like it made me think, can wealth distance us from one of the key elements of what it means to be human? And that is to be dependent on God and dependent on other people. This is part of what it means to be human. I don't know the answer, but it would be a good lunchtime discussion, right? And it's like the truth of this story is it's untamable. It resists simple answers. It makes me resist telling people what to do because I don't think that's helpful. Um, it's like one of these stories that prefers to be experienced over explained. Like we just have to feel this story, experience it for ourselves, because it cuts against these ideas that are usually important to us, ideas of self-preservation, ideas about security. And it's like we who are among the world's most privileged are going to have to ask ourselves some tough questions. Maybe one of those questions could be framed by St. Anthony of the Desert, our friend. And he said, how can we better become what Jesus said? How can we better become what Jesus said and imitate the good? Let's pray.